Hey, Shelter in Place listeners. I'm Emily Corsetti from The Purple Principle. How did our country get so polarized? The rise of television news, the rise of social media, every single force is pushing us apart. How do we get less partisan? People have a lot more in common than they think they do on policy. And can independent-minded Americans bridge the divide? I think that there's value to having folks like me outside of the parties. Take a 360-degree tour of partisanship with The Purple Principle, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about coming together in a world that pulls us apart. From Oakland, California to Hamilton, Massachusetts, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. The most important thing to do after I ask them what their concerns are is to shut up and listen. If I don't stop talking, then I'm not hearing their story. I want them to feel heard. And yeah, sometimes no matter how much you listen, you won't agree, but that's okay. At least we've had that conversation that opens up trust. Last week in a Fox News interview, former President Donald Trump urged all Americans to get the coronavirus vaccine, which he and his wife Melania received privately in January. In the interview, Trump said, it is a great vaccine. It is a safe vaccine, and it is something that works. I would recommend it to a lot of people that don't want to get it. And a lot of those people voted for me, frankly. It works incredibly well, 95%, maybe even more than that. And it is really saving our country, and it is saving, frankly, the world. However you feel about Trump, this is a defining moment. In January of this year, a Texas A&M survey found that those most likely to refuse the vaccine were women, black populations, and those with conservative leanings. Trump's endorsement of the vaccine probably won't convince all of the skeptics, but it may help those who've looked to him for guidance as they consider the increasing data supporting the vaccine's safety and efficacy. Our team here at Shelter in Place began talking about vaccine hesitancy back in December, when the FDA had just approved the Pfizer vaccine for emergency use. We were excited about the vaccine, but we also had questions. Beneath those questions were deeper ones. How do we get our information? Who can we trust? In this episode, we look at the history behind that hesitancy. Hi, my name is Sarai Waters. I am an apprentice with the Shelter in Place podcast. I am here today to talk about vaccine hesitancy. In early March, Sarai became the first to graduate from our podcast apprenticeship program. That same week, Sarai shared her story of being homeless on the streets of L.A. and San Francisco in an episode of Shelter in Place. Recently, we spoke with Sarai again, this time about vaccines. I think about the necessity of it, like the TB shot there are a lot of hazards when going into homeless shelters. So in situations like that, it's definitely a benefit to get a vaccine. Vaccines that have stood the test of time, I'm all right with. But when it comes to new vaccines or things that I've heard bad stories about, I'm very hesitant. The history Sarai alluded to, the history of vaccines and people of color, is one that illustrates the good and evil humanity is capable of. Whether we're pro or anti-vaccine, every single one of us has benefited from that history. Some of us have been harmed by it. 
We've often referred to this year as our pandemic odyssey because the pandemic has launched my family and me on an uncertain journey, both geographically and vocationally. Like Odysseus, we've been away from home a lot longer than we thought we would be. We've had fun with these literary ties, but today, especially when we're talking about the difficult history of vaccines and people of color, it's helpful to have another story to guide us. In both of these stories, the heroes aren't always obvious, and the ethics are sometimes sketchy. Odysseus and our forefathers in medicine make some questionable judgment calls. Sometimes people died because of it. There are a few bloody scenes that end badly. What got me through those chapters, both in the Odyssey and in researching this episode, was keeping the bigger story in mind. A story of trying to get back to safety, but sometimes losing our sense of direction along the way. I know a lot of Black people who have not been treated well by the medical field, people who have been neglected by their doctors because they didn't have insurance or they didn't feel that their concerns were valid. And that raises big concerns for me because this is supposed to be health care, but you're not caring for the people. Over the past year, experts have tried to understand why Black and brown populations have been hit so hard by COVID-19. Among the answers to that question are that many of them are frontline essential workers who are regularly exposed to the virus. In some of these communities, it's not unusual for several generations of family to live together, making social distancing or isolating next to impossible. Others have jobs that don't provide health care, so they're less likely to go to the doctor. For those without internet access, it's hard to stay up on the latest news or to sign up online for COVID tests or vaccine appointments. But black and brown populations are also among those most hesitant to get the vaccine. Even though black Americans are one and a half times more likely to die of COVID than white Americans, only 5.4% of vaccinated Americans are black, while 60.4% of those vaccinated are white. For people of color, there is a real and valid reason that they fear any kind of new treatments or interventions because there's such a long and disgusting history in the United States of our government using the bodies of people of color as experiments. That was Garnet Henderson, a medical journalist and professional dancer who participated in the Pfizer vaccine trial. We spoke with Garnet in our first installment of this series in an episode called Trials and Tribulations. Garnet walked us through what it was like to be in a clinical trial to help us better understand that process. We also spoke with Dr. Joyce Sanchez, an infectious disease specialist at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who has spent her life studying and preparing her patients for viruses like COVID-19. There's reason for mistrust. There's definitely communities where there's been historical injustices, so any hesitancy is very valid. UNLV's Director for Health Disparities Research, Melva Thompson-Robinson, says that it's not that people of color necessarily distrust healthcare, but that the healthcare industry hasn't presented itself to be trustworthy. Here's Joyce again. 
when you have historical memories of injustice with being treated inhumanely by withholding treatment in Tuskegee, Alabama, or given the lack of access to care in many communities of color where there's a disproportionate number of infections and deaths due to COVID, that creates a barrier to trust between those communities and some of the larger healthcare systems. Joyce mentioned the Tuskegee experiments, a study conducted between 1932 and 1972, where in the name of research, the U.S. Public Health Service and the CDC let hundreds of black men go untreated for syphilis, even though at some point in that process, doctors knew that penicillin could cure the disease. The men who participated in the study were told that they were receiving free health care from the federal government that included treatment for their disease. But instead, doctors watched many of these men die slowly and painfully. Some of them passed the disease on to their wives and children. Unfortunately, this was not an isolated incident. The 19th century physician J. Marion Sims, often referred to as the father of gynecology, did all of his work on female slaves and didn't administer anesthesia during procedures because he believed that black women didn't experience pain. These are hard stories to stomach. It's hard to even imagine now what those doctors must have told themselves to justify their cruelty. But there are also more complicated stories, advances in research that we're all still benefiting from today. Henrietta Lacks was a black woman who died in 1951, but whose cells doctors have often called immortal because they didn't die off like regular human cells. Henrietta's cells have contributed to some of the most important advances in medicine, including the polio vaccine, chemotherapy, cloning, gene mapping, in vitro fertilization, and developing drugs to treat herpes, leukemia, influenza, hemophilia, and Parkinson's disease. The only problem is that Henrietta's cells were taken from her cervix without her consent. Consent wasn't legally required at the time she was being treated. 30 years later, her children would unknowingly be used in further research, something they would only learn when their medical records were published. Even in our biggest vaccination success stories, there's a checkered history. When European settlers brought smallpox to the Americas, it devastated native populations. In the early 1700s, when a slave named Onesimus told Cotton Mather about the West African practice of taking infectious material like pus and introducing it through an incision in the skin of those who'd not yet been infected, the first U.S. medical trials to inoculate smallpox were performed on black slaves without their consent. Eventually, as Joyce said, a vaccine was discovered that wiped out the disease completely. But even in this incredible moment in medical history, there's this very important footnote that it was black slaves who first made that moment possible. Thankfully, the medical community has taken some steps to begin to right these wrongs. In response to the Tuskegee study, the 1974 National Research Act made informed consent mandatory for clinical and behavioral studies in the United States. After writing a book about Henrietta Lacks and realizing just how indebted all of us are to her immortal selves, Rebecca Skloot founded the Henrietta Lacks Foundation to provide aid for families who'd been impacted by medical research. Joy said that the holy grail of infectious disease is what happened with smallpox. 
a disease that once wiped out whole populations, is no longer a threat to any of us. Smallpox scoured our early U.S. history for a long time, and once we had a safe and effective vaccine against smallpox, it's since been eradicated. That is where we would like to get with all vaccine-preventable diseases. She hopes we can get there with COVID-19, and she's convinced that vaccination is the best way to do that. But she also understands that given the difficult history of vaccines, the choice isn't so simple for everyone. In her interview with Kiana Summers, Melva Thompson Robinson says, healthcare has never been a trustful institution for people of color. We're building on centuries of harms that have been passed down generation to generation. Sarai shared this perspective. As it stands right now, there are a lot of other things at play when it comes to this vaccine. I know a lot of people that do not trust it at all. And honestly, I don't think there's anything that they can do at this particular time to get them to trust them. Melva says that resistance to the vaccine isn't just about the abuses that happened in the distant past. It's about the ripple effects that continued throughout history. She tells the story of her mother growing up in the Jim Crow South, where she'd have to use a different entrance than white people and then wait until all of the white patients had been treated before she could be seen, if she got seen at all. These practices led to a culture where people of color were used to not being prioritized, and so they'd only go to the doctor in an emergency. When we talk about systemic racism, this is what we mean. It's not just about people of color being treated unethically or inhumanely in a few isolated incidents. It's about the culture that made those events acceptable at the time that has trickled down to us today. Especially if the system has mostly been working for us, we may not immediately recognize these practices and patterns as systemic racism because we're so used to them being a regular part of daily life. We need to be able to connect the dots through history that extend to today. Reading about J. Marion Sims and his beliefs that Black women didn't experience pain made my stomach churn. But that myth didn't die with him. In a 2016 study that included hundreds of white medical students and residents, half of them ascribed to myths about racial differences related to pain, myths like the nerve endings of Black people being less sensitive than those of white people. Those who believed in those myths were more likely to undertreat their black patients and underestimate their pain. In 2012, an analysis of 20 years of published research in the United States found that African-American patients reporting pain were 22% less likely than white patients to get pain medication from their doctors. Dr. Salima H. Magani is an associate professor at the UPenn School of Nursing and was the lead author on that 2012 analysis. In a 2019 story by the Washington Post, Salima said, A lot of work in the social sciences has shown that you're more empathetic to people in your in-group than your out-group. That's a very well-studied phenomenon. I've only had one Black doctor in my life. That was literally the only experience that I've had with a Black doctor. I'd like to see some doctors that look like me. Not that white doctors don't care, it's just there's a level of comfort when there's representation that you don't get from the predominantly white doctor's office. Because of that lack of representation, there's a lot of distrust. 
There's so much value in having representation. If you don't see doctors, nurses, medical professionals who look like you, who are in your community, who speak your language, if it's not English, it's going to be a lot harder to trust and to break down those barriers. I think it's really incumbent upon us as a medical community to regain that trust and to really integrate into the communities and partner and have leadership that is representative of people of color. Lots of institutions, including where I am now, are really increasing their efforts to have representation in leadership, the medical students, the ancillary services, so that when people come in, they feel like they can be comfortable and vulnerable, and we need to do a better job of that. Joyce has experienced firsthand how powerful it can be to connect on both a linguistic and cultural level with her patients. When I see on my schedule that I have a patient who is a Spanish speaker, when I come into the room or open up the video visit and I greet them in Spanish, it's like a light turns on. I just see some relief in their faces and not just them, but family members who may be there. It's just really wonderful. And I especially love it if I have a patient from Puerto Rico. That's my family's heritage. It's really fun to connect with them on a level that sets aside medicine. These kinds of conversations between doctors and patients are crucial when it comes to addressing vaccine hesitancy. But perhaps even more importantly, they begin the work of repairing the damages of the past. I really believe that people are very well-intentioned and everyone is on a quest for truth, right? What is truth? And unfortunately, in medicine and in science, that truth can be messy a lot of the time, particularly as we're learning about a novel virus. When you have historical memories of injustice, any hesitancy is very valid. You can't just jump in. You got to do your research. You really have to do your homework. Give this vaccine about a year minimum, and then I feel like the Black community will be more open to getting a vaccine. I've had conversations with both people who are medical and non-medical. Some just wanted to see more safety data out there, and that's very reasonable. It did take some time, but more and more healthcare professionals are opting to get a vaccine now that we have more and more data out there. The topic of vaccine hesitancy and mistrust of healthcare systems, they're not new things. We've dealt with this before the pandemic. I encountered it nearly every day in my infectious disease and travel medicine practices. If I weren't seeing the data every day, I might have some questions, and that's very valid. The difference, Joyce says, is that this time around, the consequences of that mistrust can be fatal. If this was just a common cold, even if it spread across the globe, most of us recover from the common cold. There's not significant deaths related to it. It doesn't overburden our healthcare system and intensive care units. Even when we compare COVID to the flu, the difference is striking. A recent study in France showed that COVID was three times more likely to kill patients than the flu. It's worth noting that the study took into account the 2018-2019 flu season one of France's worst in recent years. According to the World Health Organization, when it comes to public health, only clean water has saved more lives than vaccines. You have to understand what the purpose of vaccines are. They're not to inconvenience you. They're not to give you discomfort. It's to protect you as an individual from disease. 
When we think about evaluating safety, clinical trials today are the most vigorous that we've seen in the history of medicine. We actually have a lot of data now. When we think about the globe, we're talking about more than 100 million people who have received at least one dose of these vaccines. If we have a vaccine that can prevent disease, why wouldn't you want to go for it if it's safe, if it's effective? Even if it's not 100% effective, which I can't think of a vaccine that is 100% effective at completely eradicating disease. But even if it's not 100% effective, they are able to reduce disease severity. Even the reduction of disease severity can have really meaningful impacts in health when you talk about population level. And then also limits the spread of infectious diseases. For example, polio in the 20th century was so devastating to kids every single summer, causing significant problems in paralysis and kids needing to be on iron lungs. And even when there was a small degree of vaccination, that was able to limit the spread so that it could protect other kids. If we can protect people starting at the individual level and then applying that to the population level without doing harm, I see no reason why that can't be an integral part and shouldn't be an integral part in humanity as it is today. Joyce's example of polio brings up an interesting point. If enough of us get vaccinated, then we'll protect those who haven't yet gotten the vaccine. This is the idea of herd immunity, a phrase that we've heard a lot in the pandemic, but that even now is poorly understood. I'll confess that even though I've read a lot about herd immunity and heard Joyce talk about it, I didn't really feel like I understood it until I read a story in Forbes by Ethan Siegel, who compared COVID-19 to a predator, a lion. He writes, the isolated and injured zebra stands little chance against a lion or a pack of lions. An immunocompromised individual similarly stands little chance against getting infected and having that infection be potentially lethal by a deadly disease. But Ethan says, take that same injured zebra and put it in the middle of a pack of strong zebras and even the wounded zebra stands a good chance. In other words, herd immunity is when a substantial amount of the population is already immune and therefore won't pass along the disease to those who aren't yet immune. Of course, getting the virus can also make you immune or at least inoculate you. But there's an important distinction between inoculation and vaccination. With inoculation, you get the virus and hope you survive and escape long-term effects on your health. With the current mRNA COVID-19 vaccines, your body receives a messenger that triggers the immune system to respond by building up antibodies, but not actually exposing your body to the virus itself. When medical professionals talk about herd immunity, they are always talking about the kind that comes from vaccination. When my family and I left our home in California and set out on our pandemic odyssey, we were a little wounded. One of the reasons we came to Massachusetts was to surround ourselves with the stronger herd of extended family. In the shelter of that protection, we've stayed longer than we originally anticipated. In Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus makes a few longer-than-anticipated stops, too. One of them is Circe's Island, where the bewitching Circe turns Odysseus's crew into pigs. It might be a stretch to compare getting COVID-19 to being turned into swine, but the thing that protects Odysseus from that fate looks an awful lot like a vaccine. 
the god Hermes gives Odysseus a magical herb called moly, which makes Odysseus immune to Circe's magic and even allows him to save his men. While the COVID vaccine hasn't been gifted to us by the messenger god, the messenger RNA vaccine does function in a similar way. Our biggest problem right now is that we don't yet have enough people who trust that herb. To reach herd immunity, our population needs to get enough of us vaccinated to protect those who don't end up getting the vaccine. Joyce recommends vaccines as part of her daily job, but she says that the most important thing to her is that her patients feel heard, even if that means that they ultimately decide not to get vaccinated. My general approach whenever I have a patient with something that may be a barrier to their care is to do whatever possible to ally with the person in front of me, ask what their concerns are. But the most important thing to do after I ask them what their concerns are is to shut up and listen. If I don't stop talking, if I don't listen, then I'm not hearing their story. When I listen, I can really understand where they're coming from. When I listen, they are treated with the same level of respect that I would want for myself. And when I listen, I show that I generally care about their concerns. When I listen and give them space to tell me what's going on in their life and what their concerns are, what their complaints are, what the issues are that are going on at home or historically, then we can have a conversation. What are the common goals that we have in regards to their health? And then answer any of the questions they have to the best of my ability. And sometimes no matter how much you listen, you won't agree, but that's okay. That's humanity. That's not just in medicine. It's their life and I want them to understand that I care for them and I want them to feel heard. But at least we've had that conversation that opens up trust. This is why we began this series. Why since day one of the pandemic, we've been putting out episodes of Shelter in Place to encourage both personal and community transformation. Change is hard, especially when it happens fast. So we've tried to provide stories and guides along the way that can help us get our bearings. When we were working on this episode, one of our assistant producers, Michelle O'Brien, said that when it comes to conversations about racism, some of us need to make space and some of us need to take space. If you're white or if this history is new to you, I want to invite you to make space for the stories all around you, from people in your life, people of color who've been hurt by this history, but also space to lament. If you're a person of color hearing this, my invitation for you is a different one. Perhaps the best thing you can do right now is to take space, to care for yourself, to grieve what's been lost, or maybe even to share your own story. Learning to trust is a process of weighing what we've experienced in the past against our willingness to try to find a different ending. When I look at the history of vaccinations in this country and see so much pain, it helps me to look to the people today who are working hard to heal those wounds. Joyce isn't alone in wanting to be part of that effort. I've been inspired lately by the work that the Black community is doing to address vaccine hesitancy. The National Medical Association, a coalition of Black medical professionals, decided to do their own investigation into the vaccine data to decide for themselves whether or not they agreed with the FDA. After sifting through all of the evidence, they gave the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines their own stamp of approval. My favorite example of the Black community addressing vaccine hesitancy is a video series called The Conversation, Between Us, About Us. 
W. Kamau Bell kicks off the series with a hilarious five-minute video where he somehow manages to be funny and incredibly informative as he asks black doctors and scientists about the vaccine. Hello, black America and people who pay attention to what black folks are doing. My name is W. Kamau Bell. There's good news out there. There's a COVID-19 vaccine. Yay! But the bad news is, as black folks, it's hard to trust what's going on. So what do we do? Well, we turn to people we can trust, black folks. But not just your uncle at the cookout. No, 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 actually not him at all. I'm talking about black scientists, black doctors, and black nurses. Okay, you can find place. that at greaterthancovid.org and also on our website, shelterinplacepodcast.info, where we'll include links to all of the resources and research we've mentioned. I want to end this episode with an excerpt from a letter written by the Black Coalition Against COVID-19, a collaboration between Black medical professionals from the National Medical Association, the National Black Nurses Association, the National Urban League, and all four historically Black medical schools. But I'm not going to read it to you. Sarai is. To my community, be your own advocate. Do your research, because no one will love and take care of you the way that you can. Dear Black America, we love you. We affirm that Black lives matter. And as Black health professionals, we have a higher calling to stand for racial justice and to fight for health equity. In the spirit of unconditional love for every single Black American, we have locked arms in an initiative to place the health and safety of our community at the heart of the nation's conversation about COVID-19. Respect for our Black bodies and our Black lives must be a core value for those who are working to find the vaccine for this virus that has already taken so many of our loved ones. Our colleagues across healthcare know that we are urging our community to take safe and effective vaccines once available. However, for this to be successful, they must do more to earn your trust now and in the future. We know that our collective role in helping to create a vaccine that works for Black people and that we trust has an impact on our very survival. We commit to keeping you updated. Please visit blackcoalitionagainstcovid.org slash loveletter to learn more about the work we are doing to keep our beloved community safe. We will keep you in our hearts while we work to create a world that is healthier and more just than the one we know today. Love. America's Black Doctors and Nurses. As always, if you listen to the very end of this episode, you'll hear shelter-in-place outtakes. But first, if you haven't yet taken our listener survey, we would love to hear from you. Your advice and feedback will help us with everything from creating future episodes to talking to potential sponsors. Find the link on our website shelterinplacepodcast.info. Shelter in Place is listener supported. If you'd like to support the good things happening here, including our new apprenticeship program, where we're training the next generation of women podcasters and creative entrepreneurs, you can find information on how to donate to Shelter in Place on our website. If you'd like to help us but can't donate, asking your friends and loved ones to subscribe to Shelter in Place helps Herdat to find us sponsors and expands our community. Check out our new referral program where you can sign up with the unique referral link and we'll thank you on our website just for signing up. 
Shelter in Place is part of the Heard At Media Network. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Additional music and sound effects for this episode came from Storyblocks. Isabel Obrecht and Michelle O'Brien were our associate producers for this episode. Alana Herlins was our assistant audio editor. Nate Davis is our creative director. Sarah Edgel is our design director. And our amazing season two apprentices are Winnie Shee, Alana Herlins, Eve Bishop, Isabel Obrecht, Melissa Lent, Clara Smith, Elin Teckley, Michelle O'Brien, Chuen Zhang, Samantha Skinner, and Shweta Watwe. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now, if you're still listening, here's a little outtake. First question, who is your mommy? Mm-hmm. Joyce. Okay. Good for you. What does she do? She works in the hospital. She's an infectious disease doctor. Excellent. What does mommy tell people when they feel nervous about the vaccine? Don't be afraid. It'll be okay. Do you feel nervous about the vaccine? No. Yeah. Where do you get your information about the vaccine? From mommy. Yeah, from mommy. What does hesitancy mean? Disappointed. What it means is you're nervous about something. What sorts of things is daddy nervous about? Watching a certain TV show on Netflix. Daddy's hesitant about certain Netflix shows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is mommy hesitant about? Uh, water skiing. How about you, Lucy? Are you hesitant about anything? When Corona's gonna stop. Mm. What do you wish everyone knew about the vaccine? That it's a shot. A Huda Media Production.